Hey everybody, it's Michael, one of your hosts, and welcome to e-commerce QA. This is the show where store owners, directors of e-commerce, and e-commerce managers can stay up to date on the latest and greatest in e-commerce. Today we are joined very happily by Nick DeSabato, founder of Draft, and Nick, welcome. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Well, this is the second time a little bit of deja vu going on because last week we we started, we actually were recording this episode and then the audio went all crazy. And so now we have to outdo ourselves. Software is terrible. Yeah, yeah. Who, who writes the software anyways? So Nick, just in case nobody's heard of you, which everyone being on the show, if you haven't heard of Nick, you'll be very happy to to hear what he has to say. He is, I consider him sort of like the the modern godfather of, of CRO in terms of like strategy and just the thinking behind CRO. What is CRO? CRO is conversion rate optimization. And Nick just has a wealth of, of wisdom to share with us today. Thank you, Nick, again for joining us. Where should we start? Maybe we can start at the beginning. Why did you get into conversion rate optimization? Uh, so I have a design background and I mostly do like UX design, interaction design, that sort of stuff. And I thought about like, what is the thing that I could run in my business that is kind of in the Venn diagram overlap of stuff I can do on a monthly retainer and stuff that is still kind of UX-y in nature, still trying to improve software, make it easier to use, that sort of stuff. And I settled on A-B testing because it's something that is kind of an ongoing process and it's not it's not something that has to be kind of a self-contained deliverable, right? You're not building a wireframe a month, right? Like that doesn't really work for people or you're not doing like IA research every month or at least nobody would pay for it. And so that I launched about four years ago now, and it's kind of evolved into more of a like end-to-end research-driven CRO engagement where I am talking to your customers and, and like taking a look at your analytics and heat maps and surveying people and doing everything that I can to understand what their motivations are and what their actual behavior and practices. And I use that to drive new A-B testing insights. So there's very few, if any, call-to-action button color tests or other type of things that you see on kind of get-rich-quick case study type type scenarios. So. Can you give me a couple of examples of some, some really cool A-B tests that you've done? One of my favorites is for a... Uh, they're like an everyday carry company called Keysmart. And they used to have like five different models of Keysmarts, basically like a Swiss Army knife or a keychain. And I ran a test that paired back their entire site to one model. And turned out inconclusive, like it didn't move the needle in either direction. We didn't increase their conversion rate. We didn't decrease their conversion rate. Just basically everything stayed the same, but people were buying one model of Keysmart instead of varying shares of five different Keysmarts. And the consequence of that was that they were able to remove those those products from their offerings, from their product line, and they reduced manufacturing and shipping expenses by something like a third. It was some totally preposterous amount. So it wasn't just, you know, the lesson out of that is that CRO and A-B testing, you're measuring the economic impact of a design decision. And that can often result in the increase of conversion rate. But if you're reducing expenses, you're still getting a win for the business. The goal is profit, right? And so you can do that by increasing revenue, the most common part of CRO, or also decreasing expenses. So that's one kind of surprising thing that, that I've done recently. Yeah, I love this so much because you know it's very easy for companies to think of in a sandbox way about digital and about e-commerce specifically, it's like, oh, that's online. But no, in, in this case, you were looking at something that was really a, a very valuable insight about the customer, essentially, mm-hmm. which is people just wanted the product. They didn't actually care about the color of the product, driving down the operational and manufacturing costs around that. That's fantastic. Have you had any other kind of like outside the box, cool case studies or experiences like that, where 
you were expecting to maybe drive something that was more just digital, but then you found this deeper insight about the company? Um, there was one for the wire cutter where, um, the, I can't believe I've been citing this test, but it was a call to action test of all things. It's like one of the only ones I've ever run that I've seen work, but it was what you're talking about, that kind of deeper insight. And so there, uh, if you don't know the wire cutter, they're basically a tech blog. They're currently owned by the New York Times. I was working with them when they were an independent company. And they had basically, if you've never seen them, they're basically consumer reports for millennials because consumer reports incorrectly firewalled all their stuff. The wire cutter's business model is oriented around, we do hundreds of hours of research to find the best thing, much like Consumer Reports does. But then there's a link out to Amazon and you buy it and get affiliate kickbacks. And so I think something like 85% of their revenue at one point was affiliate kickbacks, at least that I know of, a high share. And so we changed call to action button colors. So instead of them all being one color, they were like Amazon orange, Walmart blue, Apple store warm gray, you know, that sort of stuff. And so people... The deeper insight is that people look at that and believe it's more trustworthy because it looks like it's lightly branded with the the store's branding, right? But it still had, you know, wire cutter Futura in it. So it was it was still it was a it was the seam between the wire cutter and the third party vendor. And so um, that ended up faring extremely well and encouraged, you know, the biggest metric that we have is clicks out in that situation because they, we don't know whether somebody's bought something on Amazon, but we know that it roughly correlates, right? We know that people are able to beeline to that and they might wish list it and you get the affiliate kickback later, that sort of thing. And it bore out in the final numbers. Great. That's great. I wish we could ask you what the final numbers were, but I won't ask that. No. So, <laughs> you know, you said something interesting, which was you almost didn't want to mention it because it was a, a button color test. And I know, I think um, we yeah. talked about <laughs> the button color tests because that's like the prototypical, oh, we changed our button color and our, you know, our revenue doubled, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, that's what I was mentioning about. I was kind of subtweeting these like, people get A-B testing ideas from other case studies because they have a sense that it's what works. But that's not how I go about finding revenue-generating design decisions. And I found really the only way to do it is by actually researching and People get very, uh, they get very bored or allergic to the idea of research because you associate it with just like being in a library and looking at an encyclopedia that exists for some reason and writing a five paragraph essay. But for me, research is just looking at where there's revenue leakers and listening to customers about their motivations. And these are practices that you should be doing in your business no matter what, right? So I often come in and I say, hey, A-B testing, CRO, here's a bunch of sexy stuff. And then I make you eat your vegetables. <laughs> So talk to us about that, because you've, as you mentioned before, there's two types of research that this involves, qualitative and quantitative. And I think most people on the call know what that means. Qualitative has to do with the quality of the difference or like, you know, how something feels, looks, that kind of thing. Maybe potentially harder to, to, to measure, maybe not. And then quantitative would be like the classic uh, number of clicks, number of this, number of that, you know, revenue and so on. Okay, well, how does that work on the research side? Yeah, so for me quantitative is more like what you're typically doing with Google Analytics or with heat maps or something like that. So you have a certain number of people that are clicking on a thing or going in a certain path and that sort of stuff. And so there are, there are numbers you get out of it, right? Your conversion rate is a quantitative insight. Um, the number of people that are, the share of people that are going from your home to your pricing, to, to, to your product, to your cart, to whatever, that funnel is a quantitative insight. Uh, the share of traffic that you're getting from your Facebook ads is a quantitative insight. So I'm taking all of those things and thinking about what, what it is people are actually doing, right? It's the, it's the what and the how, but the, quantita the qualitative insights are the why, 
right? It's the more squishy things that are what drives a person. What is the value proposition? What are we saying to them, right? And you need roughly equivalent shares of both of those things. Like it's very easy, like I'm a nerd and I was a math major. It's very easy to just retreat to the numbers for a lot of businesses that I work with. And it's like the same aversion to getting on the phone and actually having a conversation with somebody, especially a stranger you've never met before. Qualitative responses can include, yes, I'm actually literally getting on a Skype call or FaceTime call with somebody, or, you know, I'm, I'm asking them a bunch of questions. But it can also mean doing post-purchase surveys or lifecycle emails and mining responses for what's going on. It can mean talking to your support team and understanding where the pain points are with, with certain things. In Keysmart's case, we got a lot of insight out of the support team dealing with like assembly, right? We didn't have an assembly guide. And so we put that pretty front and center on the product page and it sold more because people felt comfortable being able to actually assemble the dang thing. Fewer people were returning them later saying, I don't know how to work with this thing. And we inserted assembly guides in the actual physical product. So when you get it in the mail, you get a little business card that shows you how to do it. And those are things that, you know, they're the practical considerations like that. And then there's kind of, you know, broader, higher level things like, how are we communicating as a brand? What is our voice and tone? What problem are we specifically stating that we, that we solve? And a lot of people come in the door thinking that they know the answer to that. And it, we never end up in the same place after qualitative research. We always end up a little bit further afield or maybe with a refinement of those insights. And we end up coming up with something that, that works better, not only for the business, but also for the customer because then they feel more comfortable buying the thing. Like it's not a matter of manipulating the person. It's a matter of making them feel more empowered by the, the product that you have to offer. I think it's interesting in e-commerce that a lot of the decisions are made by very scrappy people. And I love scrappy people. I would... Uh, most of the time consider myself a scrappy person. What I mean by that is just getting there and trying things and, and throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks and then saying, oh, that didn't work. I'm going to start throwing meatballs at the wall. Oh, the stick better. Great. But I think what we're running into with e-commerce is that it's becoming the men versus the boys. And to really compete, you, you can't just guess anymore. You actually have to have data, like you're saying. So, you know, let's say that somebody wants to get started and they, I mean, <laughs> they're probably going to want to just just hire you for your excellent services, but lay it out for us. What, how do you, what are the three steps, let's say, to get started in conversion rate optimization? Yeah, so the first thing is get everything configured and fix all the bugs. So that's the first step. So usually your analytics have been gathering dust and cobwebs, or uh, that's in the worst case. And then the next worst case is you have analytics, but they're not configured correctly. Like, so if you go into your goals, your funnels or something like that, they're busted. And then after that, you take a look at your analytics and realize that your conversion rate on mobile is one-third of what it should be. And even that is one-third of what it should be compared to desktop. So you have a lot of bugs to fix, right? And there was one client I worked with where I didn't even run an A-B test for this. I reduced their page weight by something like a third, and their page load time was initially like 16 seconds. It was some preposterously oh high number. Right, right. It was some preposterously high number, and we got it down to like nine, which is still bad. Like, yeah, that's not okay, but it's not like stage and intervention level. It's just, this is bad. And their conversion rate went up by 9.12%. 
right? And I didn't, I hadn't run a single A-B test yet. So you've got to prepare the site and do the one-off optimization stuff that is just unsexy, dumb, scrappy grunt work that you know you should be doing and you're not doing. If it requires you hiring a really fancy consultant in order to do that, fine. You know, that's that's how I have a job in part. But it, also, I wish people would just do it. You know, I have a million how-to guides out there that I've written and that I've cited in other, in other sites like Conversion Excel and Copy Hackers that, that do this stuff. So the first thing is prepare the site and get it working correctly. And the best thing about that, not only you're making money, but more money, but you're, hopefully your conversion rate goes up, which means you'll be able to get to statistically significant AV tests a little bit better. So, so the next, getting to a good baseline, a clean, rather than a, just a crazy point, a reasonable point to start with. Yeah, yeah. And, and you think you can skip this step. A-B testing is how the bad... It's not how the bad get good. It's how the good get better, right? So you, already, mm, you have to that. get to a point where you're at the baseline for best practices in order to be doing this. And then the second thing is start researching. And so you have to do kind of a blend of quantitative and qualitative research, as I mentioned. The easiest and dumbest ways to do this are both by looking at your analytics, taking a look at people's funnels, that sort of thing, but also running heat maps. Kicking off a heat map involves signing up for an account with, say, hotjar.com and entering a JavaScript tracking snippet and then five minutes of typing in the right URL to be like, do heat maps here. And then you have heat maps. Congratulations. The other thing that I like doing is adding in a post-purchase survey. So if you're on Shopify, there are a ton of plugins that allow you to do this that um, on the confirmation page, they say, okay, great. Well, what was the last thing that held you back from making this purchase? Or how do you feel about this transaction? Something like that. Something open-ended. I love and, that. And then you just sit there and, I mean, embed a Google form. Something as stupid you can as do, that. You, or, can, you can do a Hotjar too for that. You can do Hotjar for that as well, yeah. It's a little bit more sophisticated to be doing that. But like, I mean, I even go so... I mean, I do the Hello World thing. I embed a Google mm-hmm. form or a Woohoo form because it takes mm-hmm. me 10 minutes. And if you are, you know, if you're if you're that lazy or busy or whatever, do that and just get the outcome there. Mm-hmm. And now congratulations, you have a blend of quantitative, heat map, and qualitative. I'm getting actual free text responses back from my customers' insights. I wouldn't stop there. But that's the baseline there, right? So you start the researching. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing you're doing is once you get the research back, there's a process called synthesis where you're taking the research. And for me, this is the fun part. And I kind of have a three-step process within this. Research synthesis is the process of taking research and turning it into revenue-generating design insights that you can test on your site. So the first part is you look at, you try and identify places where you're leaking revenue or opportunities for improvement. And so let's say um, you run a heat map and a lot of people are just beelining to the about page and then they bounce off. That happens a lot, right? You can speculate as to why that's happening, right? So you identify the problem. That's the first part. The second thing is you come up with an inference as to why that might be happening, right? People are, are doing that because it wasn't expressed on the product page. That might be one thing. It might be because they're just showrooming and they're trying to go to Amazon to buy your thing. That's another possible speculation. It's a little bit harder to address. There's, you know, if you come up with the answer being, I don't know, you go back to step one and do a little bit more research and you figure out, okay, well, maybe I need to run a usability test where I go to usertesting.com and I get somebody to vocalize their internal monologue as they're going through trying to make a, a dummy purchase on the site, something like that. No matter what, once you get to the point where you have enough research to have a, a hunch about it, the third step is coming up with a design that addresses the hunch. 
I know this is easy to say as a designer, but for me, this is the very easy part because I already have some degree of clarity about what it is the thing is. And I've come to a consensus maybe with the rest of my team about why it is that way. Because that speculation, that's what it is. You're coming to an inference about it. You're trying to make a conclusion on it. And that's scary and possibly unsubstantiated. Once you get to a design solution, usually when you have the gas the design solution kind of naturally falls out, right? So in this case, I might add an assembly guide or a little bit of an about stuffing on the actual product page, and I would address it in that way. And that's something that I test, and I determine if it increases the add-to-cart rate. The goal is to get people to kind of the next step in the funnel. And of course, you're tracking other things like, you know, ARPU, AOV, that sort of stuff, all the all the key metrics that you would be doing in average revenue per user. So that's uh, basically... I can't believe that I have never heard of that metric. Oh, don't worry about it. It's basically know those guys. <laughs> all the people that, yeah, Arpu, he's my friend. Yeah, he, uh, no, uh, check his blog. I, uh, the, what, what was I saying about that? So basically you, you take the whole, you know, everybody that hits this page and divide it by the amount of revenue that that page generates, or it's the other way around. You divide the amount of revenue by the amount of people. I know why, it's because it's four letter acronym, man. I only remember yeah. three letter acronyms, A-R-P-U. Yeah, there. those TLAs, man. Yeah, so I, I have, you know, you're getting all of the these metrics back and then you're trying to figure out what the impact of the design decision was. Mm-hmm. Something you may be noticing in all of this is that like one-ninth of the process is an A-B test, right? It's It's not about the actual test, even though that is the sexiest thing and usually why you're hiring somebody like me. A-B testing is the tool, right? Like if you're building a house, people, it would be like focusing on the hammer is the really cool thing and not all of the materials and process and blueprints that are necessary to get to the point where you're using the hammer effectively to create a house that won't collapse or leak, you know? Uh-huh. I think that eventually people will kind of, you know, clue into this process. But for me, that's kind of how I follow it. That's that's really insightful. I, I, used, to, I used to build houses or... Um... I, I was going to build houses as my career and actually really love framing, but bailed on that. But that whole idea of like focusing too much on the tool is, is so important because so much of the time it's like, what, what's the easiest solu- solution? Is it to use this tool? Is it not? You know, it's so easy to get yeah. budget for using some fancy acronym. You know, what is it this year? It's AI. You know, there's a lot of companies that are like, we need to be doing something in AI. Why do we need to be doing something in AI? What problem are we actually solving? So I think, I mean, honestly, I think a lot of the reason why people who actually understand anything about math and statistical analysis, conversion rate optimization in these other disciplines is because it, it feels like, oh, we're going to have numbers. We're going to be able to use those numbers. What I find is that it usually, it usually hits a wall. Like conversion rate optimization programs usually get started and then they just kind of peter off and it never goes anywhere, which I feel like is leaving so much on the table. You know, if you think about it... it redo your website, let's say, and it looks great, chances are that there's a lot of things that if you made slight adjustments, things would really fall into place. People would understand it so much better. I'm kind of wondering if that's one of the problems that you solve is helping people not have to um, feel like their conversion rate optimization is going nowhere. Is that Sometimes, sometimes. I mean, this morning I I gave a client a report that basically said, here are three tests. They were all inconclusive. And I don't like giving bad news, you know, like, and it's even worse to have inconclusive tests than to have outright failing tests because inconclusive tests teach you functionally nothing other than we probably shouldn't do that approach. 
a lot of it is like, you know, you have a brick of marble and you're trying to carve the David out of it. Okay, well, carve away everything that's not the David. And that seems very counterintuitive. At the same time, you're doing that and, you know, trying to convey this, the results of these tests, trying to convey the mindset shift that's necessary to think about it in a truly research and design-driven way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people hire me, at least, because they want their conversion rate to go up. And I get it. I understand that. I, that is why I'm here. Uh, you know, hopefully after a certain amount of time, your conversion rate will go up. If not, I should be firing myself. But it's not just that, and you have to kind of come in a different direction from what you're necessarily thinking. It's not a situation where you're testing to settle a debate internally. That is not going to make your conversion rate go up. You're not testing because an agency came up with a comp and you think it's interesting. Like, that's not a good use of my time. It's not a good use of anyone's time. And testing time is finite because you have one page, usually, and... You're testing that page and it's load bearing on the rest of your funnel, right? So, and I'm, you know, I know that there's a lot of pages in your funnel, but you can only test a store page at one time. You can only test a product page at one time. And so you're running into a situation where if you're wasting test time on this just wheel spinning that's not research driven, you're wasting time on several fronts, right? Like it's not even just that you're paying a lot of money on an A-B testing tool, but also other people that are competitors are doing this right, you know, Mm. and they're going to eat your lunch eventually. I have two practical questions for you. One is I find that (laughs) I have a client where they are amazing at conversion rate optimization. They've taken several years and methodically... CRO tested every single part of their website with the result that their website looks horrendous. Mm. Now, we're familiar with this problem. because The Franken test. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you address that? Because it seems actually like a lot of people feel like there's this, this, uh, you know, this situation where you can either do the thing that's the best for conversions by having, you know, flashing yellow banners all over the place to get people to sign up for the email or whatever it is. Please don't do that. Yeah. Or having a pretty website. So those aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. I think the second question is kind of the difference between beauty and conversion-driven design. And and I'll address that in a moment. Let's talk about the Franken-test for a moment. Part of researching your test ideas is so that you can understand what battles to be fighting, right? And Another thing about A-B testing in particular is that you can't cheat statistics. And so if you have a test that wins at 55% confidence, that actually tells you almost nothing. So it's not that the the neon yellow background won. It's that you had slight noise in your sampling. You need to be getting wins or losses with 95% and up confidence. And even that is conservative for some of my clients. I run most of my biggest clients until 99% confidence because it's a matter of two more days of testing. And that gives us more certitude in what it is we're doing. Within this entire consideration is you chose to test the background because you hadn't tested it before. And that's not what your customers are telling you. Nobody gives a crap about your background, right? They don't care about the the individual elements. They care about overall what it is you're trying to solve. They care about probably the text more than anything. In my experience, they care about the usability and functionality of your cart. 
They care about the ability to pay you well and the ability to get like free shipping and other incentives, that sort of stuff. That's the kind of things that you need to be testing. And you can do that on a pretty website, right? If you are finding yourself running out of test ideas, the answer is to research more and not test things that don't matter. That's my take on that. As far as the, the tension between data and, and beauty and functionality, I mean, I even wrote about this on my mailing list a couple of weeks ago, but there's a famous anecdote in like 2009 or 2010 where Doug Bowman, who was a very high up at Google in design there, who quit and then became the design director of Twitter. He was reporting directly to the CEO, whomever it was, at the revolving door at the time there. And he wrote a, a thing about why he quit Google. And one of the big reasons was that they ran uh, A-B test on 42 different shades of blue for the primary link color. And he said it just drove him batty, right? The problem is both Google and Doug Bowman are right. Google is right to be doing that because that will probably set the link color into perpetuity. And frankly, Google gets enough data that they can run a 42 variation A-B test, right? Doug Bowman is right because... If you're running, if you want to run a classical design practice, that's not the way to go about doing it, right? If you care about that kind of beauty and functionality. Fortunate thing for you, dear listener, is you probably don't work at Google. You probably don't work at a business large enough to run 42 branch A-B tests, you know? You should be trying to embrace that. And so you should be having a style guide in place. Be flexible with it, of course. It might be that, you know, data doesn't back up having a low contrast ratio or poor functionality or usability and stuff like that. But I've personally found that I can have my cake and eat it too on this front. And the best way to go about doing that is shocking no one through researching customer motivations and realizing that changing stuff to ugly nonsense and doing things that are predatory from a UX standpoint, like putting a huge modal in or something blinking or whatever have you, that is... It's like a sugar high. You get like a short-term boost from it. And then in the long term, it doesn't actually benefit your business and it results in a reduction of credibility or people kind of abandon that mechanism that you've tried as a short-term fix because all of the evil people have glommed onto something else. And so you look like yesterday's news. Um, I've seen that quite a bit. So there are a lot of distant, like structural business disincentives to do that. Now, if you're, you know, gross and unethical, by all means, throw a bunch of nonsense on your page and and do that. I can't stop you. It makes it unlikely that I'll work with you. Yeah. <laughs> but this all- is a, where we spent months and months and we, we brought in actually a mutual friend of ours, uh, uh, Rob Williams. Uh, we collaborated mm-hmm. on this project. He did the most beautiful design I've ever seen on any website and and, and they trashed it. And I just felt like, Wow, you're vandalizing your own website. Why? To get a few few conversion points. Ultimately, you're damaging your brand. I mean, they were trying to be a luxury brand. And I was like, oh my gosh, you guys don't get it. Uh, I mean, especially with luxury brands or brands that are meant to communicate to anybody like my age or under, you're hurting yourself really severely if it doesn't play on Insta. I'm dead serious. <laughs> and so, you know, if you're if you're gonna go and trash it. I mean, that's just a sign that designers should be on retainer to make sure that that doesn't happen. And then they get to be the fun ruiner by constantly defending themselves against... The problem is probably the toxic culture in that situation where they're constantly, you know, averse to design. And that'll bite them eventually. Mm -hmm. It will. And and the funny thing is, or the sad thing, I should say, they won't even know it because they'll be wondering after five years. It's in a similar way that we all found out, you know, 10 years ago with Black Hat SEO. 
don't do black hat SEO. It will kill your business eventually. Google will be very sure of killing your business, right? Like, you know, it's, yeah, it'll, it'll come back to you. Very insightful. Thank you. And the second thing is, how can people learn more? How can they do CRO right? Maybe some of them will, will want to work with you. I hope they do. I, I've seen the results that, that you're able to drive. And I definitely want everybody listening to, to go and, and see what you offer. So you can go to my website at draft.nu. If you want to hire me, Takaro slash revise onto that. That's basically the, the quarterly A-B testing service that I use. That's draft.nu slash revise. If you never want to actually see my face, you can go and buy my course called the A-B testing manual at abtestingmanual.com. And that will teach you everything you need to know and spares you the expense of having to work with me. Although if you go through that course, you're going to be like, wow, whoever wrote this is really smart, so I should probably better hire them. Yeah, that's probably likely. That's happened. <laughs> well, cool, Nick. There's so many questions I have, but in the in the interest of time, we'll have to do this again. If let's see here, we're going to include all of the notes in the show notes. Maybe do you think we get the copy of the email you mentioned that you put out? Yeah, yeah, I can definitely provide that. All right, cool. Well, I want to link to that so everybody can learn from that. So, everybody, this has been great. In the show notes again, you're going to find everything. Just go to ecommerceqa.com for those show notes. And uh, we've got a little something, speaking of research and all that, we want to understand all of the listeners' pain points are right now in e-commerce. So if you're running an e-commerce store or you're thinking about doing it, what we've done is we put together a little survey that we're just going to share all the results with, with everybody who signs up. We're not trying to push something. We just want to understand you'd like to hear us talk about more on the show. We talk about lifestyle stuff. We talk about consumption psychology. We talk about really practical e-commerce, strategic and tactical matters. Your e-commerce, your e-commerce manners are important. So, so to get to that survey, what we want you to do is go to celery.com forward slash survey, S-E-L-L-R-Y, two L's in there, dot com forward slash survey. And yeah, if you have any questions for us or Nick, send an email to podcast at celery.com. Our end or Nick, do you feel like people to email you? Uh, yeah, they can email me at office at draft.nu. And that goes to everybody in the company, and which is a very small company. And I'll answer it or somebody extremely qualified will also answer it. <laughs> well, absolutely. Well, I'm so honored that you've been joining us today, Nick. I just, I, I've been following you personally for a really long time. I've learned so much from you and now I've just learned a whole lot more. So thank oh, you so thank much. You, thank you so much for the kind words. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, everybody. That's a wrap. Talk to you later.